0: We are here today on another episode of The Intersection. It is absolutely my pleasure today to welcome Gail Wilkinson. She is a particularly well-known venture capitalist around Chicago and on Twitter, (laughs) she is the founding partner at Vitalize VC. And um, to kick it off, I want to ask you this question about you're very heavy on trying to help non-accredited investors and people regular people in general get into investing. And I'm really curious about why you think that's so important.
1: I've been in the industry for 10 years. So I started my first venture firm in 2012 and have learned a lot in that time. I personally want more people to have a seat at the table. It's it's historically an industry where the same limited partners invest in the same general partners, which are also VCs or venture capitalists, invest in the same founders. And in order to make sure more money is going to underrepresented groups. We have to have more underrepresented check writers and we have to start somewhere. So um, what I've learned over time is you have to reduce barriers for people to make them feel safe. And that typically means making it um, inexpensive to make those investments and do it in a way where, you know, they're surrounded by community where they can learn.
0: It sounds like you're saying that to make it easier for people to get to the top, you have to make it easier for all kinds of people to feel comfortable entering the space in the first place.
1: Right, I mean, you know, for example, I didn't feel comfortable writing a $25,000 check my first time. I I wrote and still write a lot of $1,000 and $5,000 checks, which is a lot of money for a lot of people, but for historically speaking, angel investors is actually not a lot of money. Historically, you know, to get into a deal, you would have to have at least 25000 for that company. And we want to make it way more accessible so that our minimum within Vitalize Angels is only $1,000 per deal.
0: That's so cool. So um, do you have any examples of like success within Vitalize Angels or what's most promising to you?
1: Yeah, we've done about 10 deals so far since we launched about a year and a half ago. And um, our general focus is technology and within that future of work which is fairly broad because if you think about it work technology is it's everywhere two-thirds of the planet works and so there's so much richness there Um, a couple of examples i can give you one is called hound it is a vertical um, application within the veterinarian industry which is completely rethinking how work in that in that Mm. space is done so antiquated fragmented old school industry needs a lot of technology to kind of get them to today's day and age. Um, so that's a fun one. And then another one is called Lunch Payments. This is a factoring solution for small business, small businesses that work within the education vertical. So imagine your mom and pop shop that's supplying something to a school system and you know you have to wait a long time to get your money. Their solution helps these small businesses get their money right away.
0: You talk about this interesting contrast between uh VC and being responsible to LPs and then angel where you kind of have this extra freedom and flexibility to just invest in whatever you want Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that?
1: Sure, sure as an angel investor, you could invest in whatever you want because it's your money So from an agency perspective you have final say you can do as much Diligence or as little diligence as you want on a company um, and create, you know, the portfolio of your dreams literally if you are a VC or a general partner who is investing on behalf of limited partners, you're a fiduciary to them. And that means you have to be much more careful and focused and strategic around ensuring you're building a portfolio and constructing that in a way that maximizes the potential to get outsized returns based on what you've promised them up front.
0: You mentioned um, sometimes when uh, you get on calls with founders and it comes to a, a point where you say no and you want to be able to give them constructive, critical advice that you kind of <laughs> leaned back or even gave gave up on it because you said people don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Do you think more people <laughs> should be open to actively, proactively seeking critical advice?
1: This is a tough one. Um, I, I would hope that yes, we're ready for that, but um, human psychology, would suggest that a lot of us are not ready for that yet. And so, I mean, I, well, if you think about you're starting business, it's your baby. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear that their baby is ugly or that (laughs) there's a problem with their baby. And I don't want to be the bearer of that news unless I can really tell from the conversation that the founder is open to being coached and is open to feedback. And there are a lot who are, um, there are a few who are not, it's tough for me um, to take that risk sometimes because for those who are not open to it, they can very much lash out against any kind of critical feedback.
0: Mm. That being said, have you ever encountered moody founders who are a little bit, um, how do I say this? In a, they they get defensive or they're mm-hmm. unnecessarily like aggressive towards you. And how have you dealt with that kind of thing
1: it doesn't happen a ton but yes like i you know i have limited funds to invest both personally and as a fiduciary on the fund side and i have to say no way more often than i say yes we only invest in less than a percentage of the deals that come through the door and i always try to be helpful where i can because i understand that somebody is spending their time to to you know share with me what they're working on um and so if you know they're defensive or whatever, I just try and let it roll off my back and move about my day because i it I can only control you know how I react to that, and that's that's their thing when I do see it um they are effectively proving to me that I make the right decision by saying by saying no <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> How have you tried i I assume that when you were starting, it was harder to let those things just roll off your back, but over time, you developed more of a thick skin to being able to just do your job and try to invest in the right people without being emotionally entangled in whatever interaction you're in. Um, I'm curious to l- know more about, like, your process going through that.
1: Well, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Tell me. Um, yeah, I I am someone who can put up with a lot and you know, it's a hard industry, especially for a, when I started, I was 29 year old, like fairly young female, um, and looked very different than many of my peers. So you just, you just grow, you know, you have thick skin to even be in that position. Um, And I, you know, I didn't focus, I don't like to focus on the negative. I actually don't really like to focus on the fact that there are things that are different because I'm a woman. I like to focus on the things that I'm good at, and that's people. So making sure that people feel um, you know, engaged and happy and connected and they want to work with us because at the end of the day, venture capital is all about the people and the connections that we make. It's the partnership.
0: You've spoken specifically about this, that of course you want to support and emphasize representation. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, one day you don't want to even have to say, I'm a woman VC you're just a VC we're way
1: past that point I am just a VC and like I wish we were not even talking about this on this show to be oh okay I can cut it out
0: (laughs) but you've you've made it clear on other podcasts and stuff that people are always like talking about labeling it like that
1: yeah like and and it's it's unfortunate I think for underrepresented people in any industry to have to always talk about it that's that's a burden that we bear and we you know i just want to be seen as a venture capitalist i'm a very good vc i've invested in some awesome companies but i always have to fight against this like oh but i'm i'm a woman vc do we ever say that he's a male vc or a man vc no right, right, right. it just that's not in our vernacular um we have to stop attributing to like others that they're different like there's actually you know so much value to having diversity in all facets of this business um, that there's alpha there. like There's a huge opportunity. And for those of us that see that, um, I think we're going to make a lot of money.
0: Absolutely. It's not just a social or a cultural thing. It's absolutely an economic benefit. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, I couldn't agree more. Um, you've talked about how one of your favorite ways to meet founding teams is to uh, meet the co-founders together and watching how they interact with each other. Can mm-hmm. you tell me more about like what you look for there?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd love to see the interpersonal dynamics about how they... How they um, interact, how their um, their disposition to each other is, because these folks have to work very, very closely in order to get to a point of um, either raising the next round or an exit, something positive happening in the future and it's you know it's really hard to start a business. it's going to be multiple years of a slog. there are peaks and valleys, and you want to make sure that the team really does get along.
0: Have you ever dealt with like co-founder conflict Mm -hmm. stuff and try to, like, help?
1: Yeah. Yeah, co-founder conflict is big. It's one of the, I think, most common reasons that early-stage companies fail. It's just like a marriage. Um, You kind of go into it thinking everything's great, and then when you really have to get down to it, value systems aren't aligned. And um, when hiring whether that's either finding a co-founder or bringing somebody onto the team as an employee or a contractor, you want to make sure that that values alignment is there as a foundation um, and that skills are complementary. And if those two things exist at a base level, you have a high higher chance of success than when the, either of those things is not is not in the picture.
0: Speaking of values alignment, you've talked about the importance of founder to investor alignment. On a human to human basis um can you talk more about the importance of founder to vc fit as people and their values rather than like a transactional thing sure
1: if if i'm raising from limited partners or if a founder is raising from me or other vcs we want those relationships to be positive so making sure that we you know feel like we can have that long-term relationship with somebody that's investing in us is important um I'm very lucky to have a number of investors who have been with me for a long time and I trust them very much. I know they trust me and I I am um I'm so committed to ensuring from a fiduciary obligation perspective that I do everything I can to ensure that we're doing things in the right way and we're we're trying to hit that 5x return for them. Um like that that's always going to be there and and I want them to f- to feel that and to know that. And and I can go to them and have real conversations about when things go well, but also when they don't go well. And having that two-way trust is really important um, for founders with their VCs as well.
0: Um, How much about company valuations do you think are real, in your opinion? Like, how much is based off reality versus how much are we kind of, like, agreeing on it based on different factors?
1: At the early stage, which is where I invest at pre-seed and seed stage, honestly, it's there's a fairly easy formula, which is you're gonna sell about 20% of your company at these early stages. If you're raising a million dollars, it's likely that you have a 5 million post-money valuation. If you're raising 2 million, it's likely you have a 10 million post-money valuation. And there's some variation and range within that, but you know, let's say 15 to 25% is what you're selling, and you're gonna end up somewhere in that range. It really, re- it really doesn't change until you get to the Series A, and then the investors are looking at what is your growth trajectory, how much revenue have you hit, what is the potential here, and those ones that are rocket ships, that's where you start to see really strong valuations, and those that you know are growing a little bit more slowly either won't be able to raise or they're going to see a lower valuation.
0: Hmm. I'm really curious to know more about. The nature of VC is that you only take so many deals from a large pool of people mm-hmm. that are asking you for money, and then at the end of the day, on- only a small amount of people with- within who you accept end up creating those returns. So, what is it about that like decision-making tr- process, trying to find those diamonds in the rough? I don't. I, d- does this make sense? I don't know exactly where I'm going with this question because it seems like a
1: yeah, yeah. Um, let's use an example. So on Twitter and LinkedIn and email, every day I probably have 60 different founders reach out wow. to me <laughs> really asking for money. And I wish I could help more, but at the end of the day, I only have so much time. And when, when that many people are asking for it, I have to be focused. And that means you know, only investing in the US, only investing in seed stage, only investing in work technology, if all those things are true, then I'll look at the deal. And that helps me to narrow. If I didn't do that, I would be nuts. Like I have people sometimes on Twitter getting upset with me for not investing <laughs> worldwide. If you're a Delaware C Corp and you're based somewhere else, I'll take a look at it. But it there's so much administration that I think founders don't understand in small funds. I spend a lot of my time doing that behind the scenes work. And when I start to invest in different types of entities, for example, that increases the load, and so I have to be really cognizant that from an um, ops perspective, I want really strong processes and streamlined procedures so that I can focus most of my time on finding companies, picking the companies, and then helping them after we make the investment because that's, th- that's where the return is. By figuring out how to do extra stuff behind the scenes, there's not really any lift for my investors there, so I shouldn't be spending time on it.
0: It's not like you dislike companies outside right. of the U.S. No. It just has to fit into your right. model. Right. Yeah. You said uh, when when working through an issue, you want to make sure that emails are free of emotion and blame and that it's best to resolve. You did your homework. (laughs) How many
1: podcasts did you watch?
0: I try to to do this with all of my guests. I try to do this with all my guests. Um, I absolutely do this with all of my guests what is it about resolving conflict live that's so important because i think this is some this is something that everybody in anything not just vc can share that conflict is best resolved live
1: well i've i have you know been in many different situations before and you want to be really careful about written communications and also verbal communications and so if you're frustrated with something waiting until you're not frustrated to deal with it is always helpful. Um if if you're a founder and you know you're upset with a client or a team member or whatever, you don't want that you don't want to say something in writing and then later be like, "Oh, I wish I hadn't done that." <laughs> so it's much better to just pause on those things as you're a leader. You you're not yes, the team might be small, but at the end of the day, you have to think about the culture and the tone that you're setting and make sure that you know you, you are the first line of defense for any BS that comes through the door. You deflect that so that your employees don't have to even know about it oftentimes. Like that is one of the never talked about really mm. terrible parts of being in the CEO seat is that you have a lot of that kind of stuff to deal with. So you, you crisis management, and conflict management are things that all founders have to learn how to do well at some point
0: i've thought about this a lot actually it seems really difficult because on the one hand um as an employee you kind of feel like you have a right to know about these things but also you kind of know intuitively that if there's something going on it's going to make you upset Mm -hmm. um and i feel like a lot of founders want to be transparent but they also know that if they're fully transparent it might make people uncomfortable um
1: yeah you can't that's it's it's a good point especially with small teams you want to share a lot of information and be transparent but at the same time you have to think about protecting people's time and emotions and energy and there's there's a give and take there um as the company gets bigger it's easier to see there's no way we can share all this information and there's just there's there's an objective reason behind that but Founders have to be really careful at the early stages, or even you know, in small VC shops. Um, my my job, one of my key roles, is to empower my team to do what each of them do does well, and I don't want them dealing with a lot of conflict.
0: You're saying VC is an art form. Please tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, if you think about basic definition of art, is creating something, you know that. That that is interesting. Um, the portfolio, I think, is that for a, v- a VC. So I think about, um, you know, what it what it looks like and and how long it takes to create that. And you know, there's so much, there's so many moving pieces. But at the end of the day, I have to paint that picture in a way that matches um, enough what I. What I endeavored to do up front, but also as things change, you know, making sure that at the end of the day, like it is a very strong portrait of of the companies within the area that I invest, and it has the highest chance of success, which means returning capital to my um, to my LPs. So there's a there's so much there's so, there's some science, but there's also a lot of art that goes into it.
0: Speaking of uh, being creative, Vitalize has pretty good content. You and Justin and the team, like, um, within VC, I consider that pretty unique. I think more so people these days, especially younger people involved in it are focused on that, but you guys are particularly good at it. Do you want to talk about anything about, and Twitter, you're pretty good at (laughs) Twitter. Do you want to talk about VC in terms of like a branding and content perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is also connected to VC as an art form, but. My background is as a marketer, and I, I actually picked marketing to major in because it is the most creative aspect of business. And um, there are not a lot of small funds that really focus on content and, and marketing, brand, community. Um, and we we lean into those areas very heavily for a number of reasons. But I think the biggest one is because we want to generate awareness. We want to be approachable. That's the word that we really think about within all of our marketing efforts, when a founder meets me, oftentimes they say, "I follow you on Twitter, and I feel like I know what to expect with you." Because um, if I were to ask people that, uh, most people are going to say she speaks her mind. She's very authentic and transparent, and um, you know, very open with information. And that, to me, you know, that feels very authentic. So we wanted our our brand's um, identity. A firm, and personal identities all to kind of rally around that approachability.
0: What do you feel like is the value that you get out of Twitter? Because especially on the creative side, a lot of artists, they may or may not be active on Twitter, Mm -hmm. but it seems like venture capitalists particularly get a lot of value out of Twitter, and they're very active, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are your Twitter like strategies?
1: I actually just share something that I learned that day. I don't spend a lot of time on it. Um, If I'm in a meeting with a founder and I can tell that something that we discussed is interesting, I might go and tweet that. Or um, today I put something up about a conversation I had with a VC this morning at the chief office in in West Loop about we're trying to figure out the psychology of founders and and what do founders think about VCs. And so I posted something from that conversation. And I also ask a lot of questions because... um, one, I think people want to be part of the conversation, so that's very engaging. But two, like I, I genuinely want to learn, it, and I have adjusted things based on what I get in terms of feedback on Twitter.
0: What do you think founders think about VCs?
1: Probably a lot of things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think I made a pretty. Um, Ignorant and uninformed video on YouTube when I was 17 in 1871 and I said you don't need no one needs VCs You should just bootstrap 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 And um, I don't I look at that differently these days because there's value in funding. It
1: depends. It depends. Some people should bootstrap Some people should take VC
0: What do you think is that distinction?
1: Well, when you think about Taking venture capital you give up control and you give up economics. So that's ownership you might have somebody sitting on your board that can now help, help you decide what you're gonna do. So you lose that control and you're giving up ownership. And that's not right. It's not a, the right decision for some people. Um, you actually might make more money if you bootstrap and you get to a point where you own 100% of it and you're kicking off cash every single year that you get to keep 100% of versus you sell a part of the business and yet maybe you grow a little bit faster. But then at that point the VC is looking for an exit outcome and maybe that doesn't happen and you the founder are actually in a worse position financially. So if if you know you're absolutely gonna create or try to create a rocket ship and you want fast, fast, fast growth and you wanna have a huge outcome, then you're gonna need to raise venture capital. But if you want to retain control and you wanna run the business for a very long time because you're so passionate about it, I would say really consider bootstrapping and running what's called a lifestyle business. And it's not that a lifestyle business is bad, you can actually make a ton of money as a founder running those types of businesses.
0: But you're saying it may be a little bit more modest of a business, but then if you raise VC, you're going through this extreme exit goal.
1: Yeah. And you're you're on that path, and if you deviate from that path, meaning you don't hit your numbers, you may very well blow up the company, right? <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. I know. and it, it, It's unfortunate, but... If you think about a VC, there are 30 or so companies in our portfolio. And after a while, the pack kind of shifts. There are a few front runners that are gonna do really well. There are a couple behind them that could. They're still kind of unknown. Then there are some that are trending to failure and then there are some that have returned very little or zero. And once again, I have to go back to my limited partners. I have a fiduciary obligation to them, which means I have to focus on the ones that are gonna drive value. And if you're kind of in that middle and you need a lot of help, but I can see that when I project out what return you're going to have, if it's not material for my portfolio, I, by design, unfortunately, can't spend a lot of time with you. I have to focus on the ones that are going to drive the value. Like That's just how it works. So when you make that decision, you go in knowing if you end up in that boat You got to be really creative to kind of find something else because some of the VCs might be like, hey, actually just let's shut this down and give me my money back because I want to focus on these other ones. And that's not something that uh, maybe I would do at this stage, but later stage VCs absolutely have to make that call.
0: Hmm. Well, maybe to close this out, you've talked about um, developing intuitive muscles over time on like... VC in general and what what, com- what things to look for and behavior and the business in general. What would you say those like intuitive things are that you've learned over time?
1: Yes, um, I really try to understand the founder and what drives them. One of the biggest mistakes that VCs make is that we get excited about a space or a business model and we think about what we would do to run that business because a lot of VCs are entrepreneurial. Mm. And I know that I did that very early in my career. And I have to consciously now say, okay, what is Matt's goal? What is Matt going to do to execute against the big vision that he has? And then I ask you questions to really figure out do I think you can execute that plan? So I'm listening for things like how you've gone out and found a bunch of information. How quickly did you do that? What did you find? how do you synthesize? how do you ship your product? How'd you learn from it? How'd you iterate? How do you reship? Like what, what does that process look like? So I'm, I'm trying to find founders that can do that relatively quickly and they can process a lot of information to get closer to product market fit every single time. Cause the faster the founder finds product market fit, the better. And then there's the soft skills. Um, are they going to be a partner? Are they coachable? Are they going to be able to hire and inspire a team around them? Um, Are they logical, reasonable people or are they going to be egomaniacs and, you know, more on the sociopath scale? And they're, you know, the founders, by definition, all of us are a little crazy. It's just true. You have to Uh be a little nuts to run these businesses. So I want I want a little bit of of that. But if it's too much, there's really not much I can do in terms of trying to help them once they, they get out there on their own.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Gail. I appreciate you coming here today. I thought I think this is really cool. I hope people get some cool insights out of this. What would you like to? We can't.
1: L- we can't end on that question. You have to end on a positive question.
0: Oh, okay. Um, let me see. <laughs> <laughs> so, people watching you guys who are artists and creatives, and maybe this is your first time hearing about VC, and you think it's something outside of you that it's it could be something that's more relevant and reachable than you assume. Um, How can people uh, who have never considered interacting with VC start to learn about it or connect with these kinds of people?
1: Yeah, I mean, if anybody that's listening that's interested, I would say um, following VCs and angels and just starting to have conversations with them. Um, So maybe um, joining an angel group like like ours, I know Hessel Fund has one. There are a couple of other angel groups that are very accessible to people regardless of where you're at in your career. And then you're sitting in the room and you're seeing deals. For example, if you're in vitalize angels, you see at least one deal a month and you see the pitch. You get to ask questions of the founder, you get to hear the internal conversation with the other 450 angels in our group. And having those moments, I think it makes it very accessible to people because uh, and that's really the whole goal why we created this group is we want to uh, really democratize the access to it. And what we're seeing is a lot of founders are joining, a lot of creatives, like it is a very cool way for people to just start writing smaller checks into the asset class with the, you know, my hope is that we help people get to a point where later if they really love it and they feel compelled to continue to invest, they can do that at a, at a bigger scale. Um, but it's all about, you know, if you're interested in it, just doing what you would do for anything, read about it, talk to people, try to join communities. And um, you know, as you learn things, and and in your intuition or your your interest is sparked based on different conversations, like follow that. Just listen to what part of VC is is calling you, because there's so much within the startup space, and there's so much within venture capital that um, you know there's there can be something for everybody if you're interested in it.
0: Like follow people, DM them, look at their stuff, and try to be close to them, and just be in the room and. Um, They may be more receptive to you than you think. Very true. Thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.